Well, I'll take your Bibles again, the book of Mark, Mark chapter 9, we'll read, actually read from verse, uh, chapter 1, and sorry, chapter 8, and we'll read from verse 27 down to 9 and verse 9, because it's all in context. So chapter 8 and verse 27, all the way down to 9 and verse uh, number 9. The Bible says, Jesus went out along with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them and saying, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with Him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. And his garments became exceedingly, sorry, his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no laundra on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them. And a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Now take your Bibles and flip over to Luke chapter 9. It's the same account, many of the same thing, but there's a few extra things in there that we want to pick up. And just keep, a, keep in mind as we go through this text. In Luke 9, and we'll read from verse 28 to verse 36. The Bible says, Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him, and, were, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but, they, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and two men standing with him. And as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. And while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. And we'll go back to Mark chapter 9. Our focus this morning is on 9 verses 1 uh, down to verse 8. Let's ask for God's blessing again this morning, shall we? Father in heaven, this morning we ask you that you would come and speak to us. Father, we pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would have freedom to move through this place and minister to every heart. Father, to those who are downcast, we pray, O God, that you encourage them. Father, to those who are hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, Father, we pray that you would break through that hardened layer and minister the truth to them. Father, for those who do not know you, have never trusted in you and begun to walk with the Lord Jesus. Father, we ask you for them that you would awaken them to faith and repentance. Father, we ask you for your blessing. Father, we ask you in the words of the psalmist that you would revive us again according to your word. Father, we pray that you would teach us your statutes, that you would make us to understand the way of your precepts. Father, we pray that you would help us as we meditate on your wonders. Remove from us, O God, the false ways Teach us and help us to love each other without hypocrisy. Father, we pray that you would spur us on to choose the way of the faithful. Help us to cling to your word, your testimonies. And Father, we ask you that you would be with us and teach us this morning. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to kind of recap a little bit, you may be wondering again, what is Mark doing? Why is he writing this gospel? Well, he writes with some goals and purposes in mind. Mark is writing to explain the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's writing to display Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of the Lord. He is God's Messiah. Jesus is God's Messiah, the anointed one. He is God's busy servant worker. Over and over again through the book of Mark, the word immediately comes up. Jesus immediately did this and immediately did that. He was always busy about his Father's work. He is God's beloved and busy son who revealed himself with power over the invisible and visible worlds. Mark writes, thirdly, to present Jesus' life and death as the saving event which was promised by the whole Testament Hebrew prophets and expected in Judaism. They were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for one who would deliver them out from under the boot of the Romans. But Jesus came to deliver them not from the boot of the Romans, but from out and underneath the power of sin and death. Well, you have to ask the question, what's Mark's purpose? Why did he write this account in verses 1 to 8, the transfiguration of Jesus? He's writing, I think, with two basic purposes in mind. First of all, he writes to display Jesus' intrinsic glory as the suffering servant, which is revealed to the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Now, in the past days, up until this, All of Jesus' glory has been revealed in the things that Jesus has done and the things that Jesus has said. 
He's miraculously healed sicknesses. He's divinely forgiven sin. He's cleansed leprosy. He's cast out demons. He's walked on the water, making a declaration that I am being, I'm God to them. He's fed thousands of people by taking a little, few little fish and a few loaves of bread and breaking them off. He keeps breaking them off and sharing them. And he showed his glory to them. But this scene is different. Jesus is just standing there. He's just speaking with Moses and Elijah. And his whole appearance is radically changed. And what they are privy to see, privileged to see, is the intrinsic glory of Jesus, the God-man, allowed to shine through so they can all see it. So he does that, first of all, to reveal and display Jesus' intrinsic glory. And secondly, he has a purpose in displaying Moses and Elijah as two examples of human suffering servants. Okay, and they appear also in glory. Get that from Mark or Luke chapter 9. So again, the question has to be asked, why do we need to hear this message? Why did you give up the next 45 minutes to two hours to sit here and listen to me go on about this? Why did you give it up? Why do we want to hear this? What's so important about this text that we need to hear? Well, a couple things. Number one, we need to hear this message in order to be able to see through the eyes of faith, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Paul tells us that seeing Jesus' glory, we will be transformed into His image more and more. You become like what you worship, right? If you worship a crazy rock and roll star with all his crazy dress and crazy antics, you might become like him. Well, as we worship and focus on the Lord Jesus, we become more like Him. So we need to see this so that we become more like Jesus. We need to hear this message so that we'll be challenged to listen to what Jesus says and has said about the call to discipleship. The call to be a Christian is not just a call to come and be saved. It's a call to come and follow Jesus all through the days of our life. We need to hear this message, thirdly, to be encouraged in the knowledge of the glory that awaits us. Jesus' glory as well as ours The best, as we keep saying, is yet to come. This Christian life is a great life. It's a joyful life. It's a fun life. It's a difficult life. Don't get it wrong. It's a suffering life at times. But there is something so much better yet to come. And in this scene, having just finished all of his description about what discipleship means in suffering for him and his own suffering, he gives him a little preview up on a mountain of the glory that's about to be his and about to be theirs too. Okay, so we need to see that so that we can re- be encouraged by it. We can also need to see it so we can rejoice in our own hope of the glory of God. Well, the big idea of the message, if you have that little note sheet that's in the folder there in, on your seat, you'll see it there. God glorifies those that endure suffering to obey and follow him. Jesus is glorified after enduring suffering to obey his father. We'll see that in a minute. Moses appeared in glory having endured suffering to obey God. And Elijah appeared in glory having also endured suffering to obey God. And one day, those of us that know and love the Lord Jesus Christ and have followed him all through this life and have endured the sufferings that are a part of the Christian life, we also will be glorified with Jesus. So my plan this morning is to work through the text. If you put a little note out, you'll see there's a whole bunch of observations. They're not main points. They're just things I want you to look at the text and observe. At the very end, we'll pick up and make those lessons and kind of highlight them what they mean. I have to tell you, 
Well, I was really struggling to know how to put all this together into a message. Some passages, some texts lend themselves so easily to a three-point sermon. It's almost right there in black and white highlighted for you. Not this one. And I did something that I almost never do. I pulled up um, Alistair Begg. If you like listening to good preaching, listen to Alistair Begg. He's really good. Uh, guys, people who listen to Alistair Begg call themselves beggars. I don't know, whatever. But I pulled him up. I thought, I'll listen to what he said about this passage. And he, the first thing he said was, this is a very difficult text to preach. And I went, yes, Alistair, you're right. It is a very difficult text to preach. But all I did was I listened while I was driving along. I didn't take notes. I didn't really write anything down. I just wanted to see how he approached it. And he did exactly what we're going to do. And if I overlap a little bit, I pick up something he said. Now you know I'm not plagiarizing. I'm giving him full credit for what he said. And if you happen to listen to the message, go for it. I'm sure it's a really good one. I didn't listen all the way to the end. I just stopped uh, when I got home. I think I was driving in my car. Anyway, having said all that, some observations, and then we'll make a couple lessons at the end. First one is this. Notice in verse number one, Jesus' reference to the kingdom of God. He says there, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come in power. What does he mean by the kingdom of God? Now, we've talked about this in Casey Bible Church over four years here and there. And what it basically means is this. It is the present time, right now, rule and reign of Christ over all his people. Jesus is seated on his heavenly Father's throne. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Having completed the work here, he rose up to be with his Father, and he's now seated at the right hand of the Father on high. He's seated on a throne. And he's ruling and reigning in the hearts and lives of all his people. The kingdom of God is already in place. Secondly, it means this. It's the future... Rule and reign of Jesus Christ seated on the throne of David, his earthly human father. Notice the difference. Right now, in heaven, seated on his heavenly father's throne. In a day to come, seated on an earthly throne, the throne of David, over the people of Israel and over all the nations of the earth. And that's going to happen in a millennial kingdom. That's a future thing. It's not yet. Two phrases, already and not yet. Theologians love to describe the kingdom of God as already in place, he's ruling and reigning on high, and it's not yet in place as far as his his earthly reign over all the nations of the earth. That's how we understand the kingdom of God. But don't be mistaken, Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. He is seated on his Father's throne in glory, and he's ruling in the hearts and lives of all of his people. Part of our submission to Christ as Lord is recognizing that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he rules and reigns in my life. He has the right to tell me and call me to do things, and I have the responsibility as a servant, as a follower of Jesus, to submit myself to his rule and follow him in that. Notice, secondly, he says, the kingdom of God, and my NASB says, after it has come in power, it's probably better rendered, I don't know what the ESV has or other versions, but there's one out there that says, the kingdom of God having come in power. Because as you read that, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Does he mean you're going to see it after it comes? Or are you going to see it, what it will look like after it's come? And what it really is, is you're going to see, these people are going to see what the kingdom of God will look like 
having come. So it's like saying they're going to get a preview of what it will be like. It's like turning on the TV and the ad comes up, the latest Star Wars movie, and they give you a preview. And you can see a little clip of the movie. It's a preview of what you'll see in a few months' time when the movie's released in the movie theaters, and you go and sit down and you'll watch the whole thing. You get a little preview. That's what it is here. It means the kingdom of God having come in power. It doesn't mean, like I used to when I was a younger person, I used to think, I wonder who it was that got to stay alive all the way from then all the way now to the end. It doesn't mean that. It means that they're going to have a preview of that kingdom after it's come in power. Jesus Christ in his full glory as he'll appear when he returns. I say that for four context reasons. Why do I think that whoever it was that he's talking about there is going to see Jesus as he'll appear when he returns? For context, notice 8 in verse 38. He talks about the Son of Man coming in the glory of his Father and the angels. 9 and verse 1, he talks about the kingdom of God having come with power. 9 and verse 2, Mark connects the scene on the mountain and that promise with a time statement. Now, after six days, or six days later, he draws a connection. Well, it makes an obvious link between the promise and what's about to happen. So it's, they're tied together. In verses 2 through 8, Jesus is transfigured. He's transformed. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. So the whole thing's tied together. What he's doing is he's promising them, you're going to see what I'll be like when I come at the end of the age in power and glory. It's a preview that you get to see. Jesus is the center and the focal point of the kingdom. Jesus is the king of kings. Now, you can have a people without a kingdom. You can have a realm or a dominion or a land area without having a kingdom. The United States of America is not a kingdom. It's a, land, it's a dominion. It's a realm. There's no king there. There's no kingdom. But you cannot have a kingdom without a king. Kings have rule over something. They have to have a kingdom. So when he talks about the kingdom of God coming in power, he's describing himself coming in glory and in power to rule over his people. Again, it's a preview. It all fits the context and the meaning of the text, the kingdom of God. Now notice, secondly, wherever you are now, notice verse 2, the inner three that Jesus takes with him, Peter, James, and John, Jesus' closest friends of the twelve, now, I've got to remember something here. As you're reading your Bible, you always want to pick up these links as much as you can. There are other occasions where Jesus takes these three by themselves and goes and does something that the other nine at this point don't see. Okay, there's a couple of them. They're really significant. In verse chapter 5 and verse 37 to 43, we say Jesus, he takes Peter, James, and John and goes into Jairus' household and he raises his daughter from the dead. In 9 verses 2 to 8, we see this scene here. Jesus takes him up and he's transformed before them. In 13 and verse 3, Peter, James, and John and Jesus are by themselves. And Peter, James, and John turn around and they begin to ask Jesus, what are the signs, what are the evidences of your coming in glory and power? And then in verse chapter 14 and verse 33, that great scene. Right before Jesus is arrested, he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. He leaves the eight because Judas is gone now, leaves the eight outside the garden. He takes those three in a group, and he goes further into the garden, and he leaves them just a little ways away, and he goes by himself to pray. So they're there, 
And my assumption from reading the text and knowing what they've recorded about Jesus' prayers is those three men were able to see and hear what he was saying, even though, sadly, they fell asleep. So there's four occasions where Jesus takes all those three with him aside by themselves. You say, who cares? What's the significance in that? Why should we not worry and note that? Listen, very significant things. There is a context of Jesus suffering in death in a few of those. He mentions his rising from the dead in 9 and verse 9. He is praying about his coming suffering in 14 and verse 33. There's also a context of resurrection in a few of those scenes. Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. In 9 and verse 9 and 13 verse 3 and 14 verse 33, Jesus' resurrection is the context of those statements. So every time he takes the three by themselves, there's a particular uh, context of discussion and context of, of scene that is, that, that's there, that the other eight don't get to see. You've got to remember, this would have been kind of weird for the other eight. They go through all the scene of Jesus' uh, death and his crucifixion and his burial, and after he's raised again, Peter and James and John go running and go, hey, guess what? We got to see him. You did? When? Back in Jairus' daughter, you know how you guys all got to stay outside? We saw him raise Jairus. Hey, you remember that, that time when, when we disappeared for a day up on a mountain and you didn't know where we'd gone? We were up on a mountain and guess what we saw? What? We saw Jesus glorified like he's going to come back. Really? I, I must admit, if I was one of the eighth, I'd be going, well, how come I didn't get to go? Anyways, but, but they're all wondering. And then at the end they say, hey, you remember that scene where we're in the garden right before he's arrested and he leaves you guys outside? You're out there. We get to go in with Jesus. We got to see him pray. And those scenes are all capturing absolutely vital truths that these three figures are going to retell and recount to the believers after Jesus is resurrected. Okay? Who is Peter? He's a recognized leader of the disciples. He's also the recognized leader of the early church. And he's standing there telling them all the things that he has seen to help explain what Jesus has done in his death, burial, and resurrection. Who is James? He's the second recognized leader of the church after Peter leaves Jerusalem. He's also there to help the church understand the context and the meaning of all the things that Jesus did. Who's John? Ever heard of the Gospel of John, the letters of John? He wrote them all. What is John's gospel? What's one of its major themes? The glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He got a preview to that glory up on the mountain. So Jesus takes those three by themselves for a very specific reason, so that they will see it, they will understand it, and after Jesus is raised, they'll be able to explain it to the rest of the disciples and the growing early church. There's more we can say about that. We're going to move on. Jesus allows those inner three to see a preview of his coming glory. Notice also, he takes them up on a high mountain. Now, there are four times that Jesus takes the disciples, either the three or the whole twelve, up on a high mountain throughout the book of Mark. Number one, he takes them up on a high mountain in Mark chapter... Try again. Mark chapter three, and he calls them and appoints them as his disciples... He takes him up on a mountain in Matthew 5, 6, 7. And what's he do? He gives the great sermon on the mountain, which is all about how the disciples should live. What's he do in Mark 9? He takes them up on the Mount Transfiguration and they see his future glory. 
they also get a preview of their own future glory. And we'll talk about that pretty soon. The last scene, the Great Commission. Jesus gets all the disciples, goes out to a great mountain up in Galilee, takes them all up on a mountain, and he gives them a Great Commission. Now you're going to go out and make other disciples. So those mountaintop experiences through the Gospel of Mark are really key. When you see that, when you see things like mountaintops or you notice repeated scenes or repeated places, pull them all out and look at them and see what you can learn. It's a great way to learn, to study your Bible, to understand better the message of the book of Mark. There's so much more. Uh, Okay, here you go. Here's a homework assignment. You got a pen ready, Laura? Here you go. Go home, look up on your computer search engine, Moses and mountain. Then look up Elijah and mountain. And look up all the scenes where Moses is on a mountain. There is some striking similarities and some correlations between Moses on a mountain in the Old Testament. Uh, I'll give you a hint. Seeing the glory of God, cool, and then other ones like Elijah. I'd love to take you through the whole lot, but we'd be here forever, so I won't do it. But it's great study to look and see where else Moses is on a mountain with God. Okay, it's cool. Moving on. 9 and verse 3, he says, Jesus was transfigured. Sorry, the end of verse 2. He was transfigured before them. And the question is, how do we understand? What does that word mean? And we need to understand it properly. In order to do that, we need to go to the book of Philippians in chapter 2 in order to first of all see his humiliation and then we'll understand his transfiguration. So take your Bible, flip over to Philippians chapter 2. This is more like a Bible class today than a, a sermon, but that's okay. We'll get there. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. All right, let's read this together. It's a well-known passage. You'll probably remember it. He says in 2 and verse 5, we'll read from there down to verse 11. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he explains it. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice this, first of all, the Son, in verse 6, existed in the form of God. That word, the phrase, the form of God, and morphe and theo is in what it says in Greek, roughly, and it means this. It's he existed in the reality of who he is. So being God, he existed as God. There are lots of people who, being somebody, live like they're somebody else. Actors are a great way to understand the contrast. An actor is an actor. He's hired to portray a part. You watch a movie, and you see the guy up there, and he's in a Western outfit with a big hat, and he's got a gun in his hip, and he's riding a horse. And you think, oh, he's a cowboy. No, he's not. He's an actor portraying a cowboy. That's the contrast. Jesus existed as God. So it means he, he existed as he really was. There was nothing fake or phony, nothing put on. He really, truly was God. 
He, as the second person of the Trinity, is eternally the Son of God. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He always was. He always is. And he always will be. He is fully divine. He did not, notice, grasp onto his deity. Now, what does that mean? It's like this. You ever have a kid with a favorite toy? You know, you, you, the little boy, little girl's got a favorite red truck. I had this red tractor when I was a little kid. I loved it. You try and take that little red tractor away from them, and they grab on with a grip of death. You know, they're not letting go. And you try and take it away. Come on, come on, let get go. The idea there of this, he did not consider it. Let's read again. He did not uh, regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning this, he didn't consider his own equality with God something that could be taken away from him. It was absolutely intrinsic to who he is. He is God. He can't lose that. It can't fade away, die off, grow old. It doesn't ever happen. He is God. He can't lose who he is as God. It's so important. Now, notice this. He took the form of a bondservant in the second life of verse 7. It says there, but he emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant and being found likeness of men. What does that mean? It means he was made in the likeness of men, the Son of God, took on human flesh and blood, being conceived and born as the God-man, Jesus Christ. Okay, He was conceived and born, and this is rich stuff, but it's hard. He was conceived and born with two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. You want a cool phrase to write down and impress your friends? Here you go. It's called the hypostatic union. Don't worry about it. It just means he had two natures, and they're absolutely tied together. They're inseparable. But it's not like he had his divine nature and his human nature and you pour in equal parts, mix it all up, and there's Jesus. No, it's those two parts are tied together, but they're not combined. They're not mixed together. They're just fastened together. It's like you take two pieces of wood, in boat building we did, take epoxy and you fasten them together with epoxy and it's very difficult to get them back apart again. There's still two pieces of wood, still to- totally different pieces of wood. They're still fastened together. We pick them up and consider them one piece, but there's still two, right? That's exactly what Jesus is like. He is two natures fastened together. Now, something else is very important here. This is an incredible thing about the Godhead. Having taken on human flesh and blood, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, does not ever put that humanity off again. Okay, So when Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary and the Son of God was, if you like, combined there, joined to his human nature, he can never get it off again. He's stuck with it. All right, So you can't take Jesus and go, well, Jesus in his deity did this and Jesus in his humanity did that. That's dangerous. He's always seen as together. All right, They can't be separated. So he is one person with two natures. But... Here's the trick. Here's the problem. You remember the scene in the mountain with Moses? And he says, Lord, show me your glory. And no one can see the glory of God and live. So what does God do? He says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And he comes up on the mountain. The mountain shakes and the voice begins to intone out, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful and so on. And what God does, he takes Moses and he picks him up and he puts him into a little crack in the rock and he kind of pushes him in there. And then he allows his glory to pass in front of Moses. And Moses can see the backside of God because no man can see the face of God and live. The glory of God is so overpowering 
They would be incinerated. And Moses comes down the mountain, and his whole face is just glowing from the glory of God, right? You remember the scene in the Old Testament. So how is it Jesus, being fully God, fastened to a human nature, can appear before man? How does it do that? Well, just like I took off my jacket and hung it over there because it was warm before, it's now kind of cool, that's nice. That's exactly what it means. He says there in the verse, uh, verse 7, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. What that means is he took his outer visible display of glory and he took it off like taking off a coat and he left it behind. And so when we see Jesus, if, you, if Jesus had walked into this room as he appeared in Galilee in the year 30, he would look just like Matt or, or just like uh, Andrew. Dark hair, you know, he would look no different than any one of us. We wouldn't have been able to go, hey, wait a minute, I think you're God because you're glowing. We wouldn't appear that way. But here's the cool thing. Okay, get all that in your head. So he comes, he lays aside his glory for time. Now he goes up on the mountain, and the Bible says, back in Mark chapter 9, he says, and he was transfigured before them. What does that mean? It literally means that he was changed from the inside out. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, be ye, uh, be renewed, sorry, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be changed from the inside out by the changing, the renewing of your mind. So Jesus is on the mountaintop and he is changed, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. And what it means is all the glory of his deity is allowed to shine through the physicality of his humanity. I can't imagine what that must have been, but it must have been absolutely amazing. Notice the three disciples, what do they do? If Moses had been there, he'd have fled if he'd seen God the way he saw him in Sinai, not the way he is here. If I'd have been there, I think I would have run away. I think it would have been so horrifying and so frightening. But look what happens. They don't run away. In fact, what's Peter say? Rabbi, it's a good thing that we are here. In other words, he, even though he was terrified, even though it shook him to the core, he wasn't compelled to flee for his life. In fact, it, I think it must have most been the most warm, attractive, blazing glory, almost like a fire that rages, and it's a sense of warmth, and you want to get close to it to enjoy that warmth, that heat, that light. Jesus is changed from the inside out. His dual nature as the God-man shines through in a full display of what he will be like in his glorified, resurrected body. One problem, and only one problem I have with modern Christian artwork. They always portray Jesus the way he was. Almost no Christian artwork portrays Jesus the way he'll be when he comes back. He will not look the same. When he sets foot on Mount of Olives that the Bible promised, we'll all know in a moment, in a, in a split second, that's Jesus. Why? Because his full glory will be allowed to shine through and blaze through. The glory that will be his as the God-man, both deity and humanity, is displayed to those disciples. And it could have been incredible. And it wasn't like Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking through the trees and they fled away. They knew they were in trouble. They drew close. They stayed with him. Notice also, Mark tries to describe the glory of Jesus in verse 3. It's a heavenly glory. In Luke 9, 29, it says his face was changed, became different. I think his face probably glowed brighter than the noonday sun. 
I was walking by this, this silly projector here before, and I did the same thing twice in five minutes. I looked down as I walked by, and I got the full light of that lamp, just boom, right in my eye, and all I could see was this blue thing, you know, everywhere I looked. Well, looking at Jesus' face would have been like that, only worse, only more bright, more intense. Mark can't find words to describe it in human-created terms, so he says his clothing is radiating. That's what the word means. It's a part of somebody. It was radiating and glowing and blazing. It was completely changed. The light would have been brilliant coming off of Jesus. It's unlike anything that you can imagine. The word to come to my mind as I was writing this out last night and thinking it through was the word magnificent. Just incredible. And the, the problem with our world is we have so much... Um, CGI and computers, and we see great cataclysmic scenes that we generate for the movies, that we've lost a sense of awe and wonder. We need to look back at scenes like this and see the glory of Jesus, see the glory of a suffering servant, the way he'll come back, the way he'll return. He came once to set us free from sin. He came once to die and suffer on a cross, but he's coming back as the conquering king and judge. And he'll come back in a full blaze of glory. Moving on. Notice verse 4. He says that Moses and Elijah appeared to them. In Luke 9, verses 30 and 31, the same two men are described. But Luke adds the words that they are in glory. They appeared in glory. In other words, they're in a glorified state as well as Jesus. I don't think it's the same level, but it certainly is a glorified state. Not only was Jesus, the suffering servant of the Lord, transformed into his glorified state before those three guys, but these two men, also suffering servants of the Lord, are also glorified with him. And that's why I titled the message at the top of your page. It's not a typo when I said, come and see the servant's glory, and I left it as servants, S-T, or S in an apostrophe. It's not singular servant, it's plural servants. All three of those men, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, are suffering servants who have been glorified. And it's so key. Okay, don't miss this. He's just spent the whole part of chapter 8 explaining and putting out the call to discipleship and all that it will mean in suffering. And then he gives them a preview of what it will be like for them if they endure that suffering as disciples of Christ. It isn't just Jesus' glory they got to see. They got to see Moses' glory and Elijah's glory. It's a promise. It's a great promise to them of what we will enjoy if we endure all the way to the end. Jesus is the suffering servant. He told them in 831 that he must suffer many things. Isaiah 40 to 55, they're called the servant songs. They describe Jesus in his suffering and subsequent glory. In Mark 9, verse 12, he says, The Son of Man will suffer many things. In Hebrews 5 and verse 8, the Bible says, Although he, being Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Moses is also a suffering servant of the Lord. In Hebrews 11, 23, 26, this is what it says. Listen. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, Con- excuse me, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses suffered ill treatment. He endured ill treatment at the, with the people of God and sometimes from the people of God. Why? 
because of his obedience to lead, obedience to God to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt into the coming land. Elijah is also a suffering servant. Maybe not as clearly as Moses and the Lord, but 1 Kings 17 through 20, it tells all his story. In 1 Kings 19 and verse 10, you know what it says? Elijah describes his state as being persecuted and hunted to take away his life because he was faithful to God, because he was faithful in restoring the hearts of the people back to God again. He knew what it was to suffer. We're almost there. Listen, Casey Bible Church. Come and see the servant's glory. Yes, a thousand times yes. The suffering of Jesus Christ was infinitely greater than anything we as men will ever know or experience. He was cut off and forsaken by his Father for those hours on the cross. That's something that none of us will ever fully comprehend. His suffering was greater. Jesus' suffering was the enduring of the full weight of the wrath of an angry God against us, you and me, for our sin. Jesus' suffering was that of one rejected and hated and abandoned and forsaken. Listen, Jesus took them up on a high mountain to show them his glory as a confirmation or a validation, if you like, of his promises. What did he say? I will suffer many things. It happened. He said, I will be rejected and killed. It happened. I will return in the glory of my Father and the angels. And having suffered, you know what? He will be glorified. And the disciples standing on the mountain looking up and seeing him in his glory saying, yes, every word that Jesus said, we're already seeing the evidence of it. We're already seeing the preview. It's like you wait for that favorite movie. What Star Wars now? Six, seven, eight episodes, something like that. And you're thinking, there's got to be a nine, right? And you wait, and two years go by, and five years go by. There's got to be a ninth episode. All of a sudden, you look at the TV screen, and whoo, there's a preview. Star Wars episode nine. And you go, yes, it's coming. It's finally, I can't stand Star Wars, by the way. <laughs> That's a sign. But the point is this. These disciples standing on the mountain with Jesus were said, yeah, he made those promises. Look, here it is. It's a preview of what's coming. It's guaranteed. Jesus also took them up to show them the glory of two others. It's an implied promise to Jesus' disciples of the glory that awaits all of us who are faithfully, obediently following Christ. Notice those two uh, prerequisites. Faithfully, obediently following Jesus Christ. Right? Listen to what the Bible says. Romans 8 verse 18 says this, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that, this is cool, we may also be glorified with him. Paul saw it. He said in Romans 5 verse 2, we exalt, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We know it's coming. And we're hoping in that. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Listen to this. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I don't think Paul said it as slowly and as emphatically as I did. I think he was writing so fast. He was like the pen was burning the page. 
He was so excited to think about all the things that God had done. He didn't even pause to put glorified in a future tense. He put it in a past tense. He has already glorified. For Paul, the reality of the glory that awaits him as the apostle, the suffering apostle of the Lord, is so real that he writes it as if it's already happened. So, finally we get to the point of all this. What's the lesson for us? Why do we have to listen to this today? Come and see the glory of the Lord Jesus, the God-man, and know Know that his promises are yea and amen, to use the old King James. Jesus' promises are absolutely sure. He can be trusted. Jesus promised, sorry, he rejected, try again. He's promised that he would be rejected and killed and raised and glorified. And he is coming back again, just as he promised. If he kept those promises, he'll keep this one. Jesus promised every single one of us, he that began a good work in you will finish it. You ever look at your life as a Christian and just go, when is the Lord going to finish this work in me? Why am I stuck, it seems, at this spot? The promise of Scripture given to us from Jesus through Paul to us, he is going to finish that work. If he made that promise, he'll keep it. If he promised he's going to come back and get us and take us to be with him for all of eternity, he'll keep the promise. When you look through the eyes of faith up on the mountain transfiguration, see Jesus there glorified, you can know that every single promise he made, he will keep. And when he returns, he will gather all the nations of the world and he will judge them, separating sheep from goats, all those that have responded to the call to follow Jesus. Every single one that has trusted in Jesus, believing on his name, all those as he says in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, who have denied themselves, taken up their crosses, and followed him, openly confessing that he is Lord. All those ones will be gathered to Jesus' right side, right side as his own sheep, his own people. But you know what? There's even more. It's so much better yet. Having saved us and Sorry, having been saved and faithfully following Jesus Christ wherever he leads us, whatever the cost, we will also be glorified. Now, I don't know what that glory is going to look like. He didn't, Mark didn't describe Moses and Elijah's glory. Luke didn't describe it. I just know it's real. It's going to happen. We will be glorified. We can joyfully boast in hope of the glory of God. Listen, we will not only see Jesus in his glory, which is massive and soul-satisfying completely to see the Son of God in all of His glory will be everything we ever needed. It will completely satisfy our souls. But He goes beyond that. Think about the grace of God toward us. He didn't just save us. He didn't just perfect us. He didn't just give us a home in glory. He didn't just allow us to see Jesus. He also glorified us. That's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It's more than we could ever ask or think. We will also share with Jesus in his glory. So what are the lessons? There's four of them on your page there. Number one, by faith, come and see. Don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord. If you're struggling with sin in your life, if you're struggling with doubts and fears and discouragement, come and see. Look up through the eyes of faith and see Jesus in all his glory. By faith, know that his promises are absolutely sure. You read the promise of God in Scripture to you, you can be absolutely certain he will keep it. 
Number three, by faith, listen to his words. We'll probably talk about this a little bit more next week, but the father, after he shadows over them with a cloud, he speaks out and he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to what? It's no mistake, it's no just coincidence that all the words about suffering and discipleship in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38, and this scene here. And what do they talk about on the way down from the mountain? Jesus rising from the dead. And the Father says, listen to him. Listen to what he's calling you to do as a disciple of Christ. And finally, by faith, rejoice, Christian. We have... We have more reason to be joyful and hopeful than anybody else in the face of this earth. Why? Because our Savior is coming back. Our Savior has finished the work that paid for the penalty of our sin. Our Savior is finishing the work right now in each of us. And one day we'll be with Him, glorified and enjoying Him forever. We have an amazing Savior. Amen? Would you stand with me? We're going to close in prayer. Loving Father, we give you thanks again for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for him who was willing to go to a cross. Father, we thank you for the one who was willing to rise from a table and take off his outer garments and wrap himself with a towel and get down on his knees and wash the stinking feet of his disciples as a beautiful picture of what he has done for every one of us. Father, we thank you that he has washed us not just with water in a bowl, but he has washed us with his own blood and all the scars and marks of sin have been forever removed. Father, we give you thanks that we are fully forgiven, those that trust in him and depend on him entirely. Father, we thank you for the call to follow him, to be his disciples. Father, give us the grace and the strength to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves to place that cross beam over our shoulders and turn around and follow Jesus wherever he leads, whatever the cost might be. Father, we give you thanks that beyond these things, that not only has he started the work in us, Father, we thank you that you are finishing your work in us, that every single thing that comes across our path is being used by you as a tool to shape us and fashion us and form us and make us a little bit more like Jesus. Father, we thank you that one day this work is going to be done. And we'll be with Jesus forever. We'll be glorified. We will share in his glory. Father, we thank you for these things. We worship you, O God, for what you have accomplished and what you're doing. Father, again, we pray this morning that the Spirit of God would move. Father, we pray that those that are discouraged and downhearted would be drawn to look and see Jesus. And Father, we pray that those who have never responded to that call to follow Jesus, to go where he leads, to trust him entirely and know the forgiveness of sin. Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would work on their hearts, awakening them to see the beauty of Jesus, awakening in them faith and repentance of sin. Father, we ask you all these things. We give you thanks, O God, for what you have done and what you are doing. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.